Welcome to episode one of season seven of Delving Into Dance. This episode becomes the 32nd episode in a project that is now reaching over 15,000 people. Starting as a podcast, Delving Into Dance now also publishes text-based responses to dance. And many of these are now online in a fantastic partnership with The Mill Adelaide. But now to season seven. This season presents a range of alternative narratives, often queer, often questioning existing social structures, and sometimes occurring outside of traditional performance spaces. This season will include a range of voices, including Luke George and Philip Adams. And for this episode, I talked to Justin Shoulder, whose body of work exists both within club settings and within theatres. I spoke to Justin just before they started rehearsals and started by asking about the first performance they remember. I think for me, one of the most formative kind of performances was actually in my childhood was watching um, Chinese dragons dance at primary school. And in many ways I talk about that as, as what inspired me um, to do and work with the form of mythical creatures and costuming and spectacle, especially within a cultural framework. Um, I just remember the fear, the incredible fear I had of this figure that seemed so alive. Um, And I I guess I always think about how those things form you and fears then become desires in many ways. Um, And so I think like from when I started about 12 years ago making these kind of full body costumes that I would animate um, in many ways it was to kind of like give the audience and myself that same energy of something beyond the human so I think that was probably the most formative and um, uh, inspiring probably more of an experience in a way yeah than say a performance was that experience something that you then wanted to do was it something that you saw I, I thought oh I'd like to try that or how did I that think play out? I think it was it was very much like trying to understand how um, there was a human behind this this um, figure that 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 it also made me really understand the power of masks um, there was definitely a desire to be because I'd go home and and make these um, very handmade costumes and masks as a kid um, and try and animate them but yeah so I guess it's like that desire to be as well as to understand um. I think that experience also made me really consider the kind of communal spectacle um, probably not theorising it as a child but the spectacle is something I've always been drawn to as well um, and that, so when you're talking community spectacle, are you talking? I guess um, as a form of storytelling. So using costumes and masks, and um, not something that's not necessarily just irreverent. Something that could be mysterious or other, um, as a way to communicate to a group of people, often in a kind of public not necessarily a theatre-based situation. So um, in a party atmosphere, in a kind of school hall, in a pageant, 
all those kind of spaces. I think I've always been drawn to them as much as I am to like a formal performance space. Um, and so I always kind of concurrently, I'm working in all these kind of spaces. Um, yeah. It's interesting how some performance spaces are considered like a, mm. a place for performance to mm-hmm. exist and then others are either unconventional or outside yep. of the normal performance canon. For sure. But historically those spaces would have always totally been spaces of performance and celebration or pageantry. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Maybe it's it's um, it's thinking about the spaces that are messy as well and that's what I'm drawn to. Um, I guess they are all kind of like have a formality in some ways but um, yeah I'm not really sure I'm going with that <laughs> is there spaces outside of those conventional kind of theatre settings to mm-hmm. do things that would otherwise not be possible I, I mean for me club, club work which is such a big stream of my practice I feel like although there, there is something very specific to those spaces and those atmospheres and the kind of experience of the audience that make them so completely different to a theatre theater work in terms of the way you can guide an audience through um, their kind of different sensory malleability, their kind of um, communal experience where I feel like they're much more in a way but also kind of distracted <laughs> it's a bit of both um, do you have to work harder in those spaces to engage people I because that distracted definitely I mean I think over time I, I have a kind of formula that I'm trying to break but I also like subscribe to in some ways is often like the 7 to 15 minute <laughs> spot number where I use particular sounds or images to draw, at first draw an audience in and then I kind of twist the spectacle. Uh, I guess I've learned that from watching a lot of cabaret and clowning, but then trying to subvert that language, as well as kind of participating in within like commercial spaces and like advertising and using that language as well. Um, loud sounds. <laughs> Light, loud, bright, shiny things and then doing something quiet. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 um, I, sometimes I play with um, binaural sounds and sounds that kind of affect people's bodies in different ways, um, sub-frequencies. Um, stillness can hold people in different ways. Um, I actually find less is more the more I do club work, I find it's more powerful to hold people with stillness and then give them moments of um, violence or movement. Mm. Um, Stillness can always be such a powerful moment because, I mean, obviously the world is so busy. And then to be forced to watch something that is either slow Mm. or static or still... Mm. Mm. Um, particularly within a body for sure can be so profound oh totally and I think already because within the club space um, there's a different sense of time so you can very much uh, extend time or shorten time or kind of you know there's all these ideas of queer time um, and people existing outside very kind of nine to five existences um, and and be having more nocturnal um, existences. Um, yeah, 
What do you think about when you think of like queer time as an idea? Mm. Like, how would you explain that to somebody who is outside of the? For sure. Gosh. Not uh, wearing pink and blue now. Yeah, probably. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think everyone probably has different conceptions of queer time. Um, for me, it's like thinking about it beyond a Western frame. So, um, I often think about a kind of meta- metaphysical framework, or I've been kind of building a, um, uh, a kind of mythic framework that stems from my own cultural lineage in the Philippines. I think it's it's like subverting a kind of capitalist mode of time, or, or like a feeling of productivity, or that's what I describe it. Um, I think it's often nocturnal, not but not exclusively. Um, queer time has a focus on the communal experience. I don't know. <laughs> There's certain some of the ideas I have to do with queer time. Yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. In regards to like performance as a modality in mm. terms, of, you know, mm. it within a theatre or in a club, Mm-mm. what is it can, that can be said through bodies, speech, sound, mm. those moments, those communal moments Mm-mm. that I guess maybe can't be said in other modes? Um, or what do you want to say through those modes? I am so drawn to the performance and the working with my body because. Um, of that kind of visceral connection I can have with an audience member that I don't have with images or um, objects or I think it's it's something very cellular um, I that has a kind of different sense of empathy um, that I mean a lot of my work is about affect, so it's it's more about feeling and sensation than something too didactic. So I think I'm very drawn to bodies um, and the potential of the body can, as a kind of form that people can relate to. Um, in many ways, I started doing performance as a kind of reaction to having a very digital-based practice, um, working with images, and I wanted to physically um, uh, feel more alive um, in this reality <laughs> as opposed to a simulation. Um, so what was that kind of image work? I used to work full-time doing retouching, like beauty retouching. <laughs> oh, great. You can work on my photos. <laughs> um, so I'm good with Photoshop. <laughs> but I was I used to work at a photo studio um, almost completely away from daylight so I'd be inside a dark room um, retouching people's pores and like removing you know ideas of blemish and it totally um, killed my subconscious like I literally stopped dreaming like that part of my brain shut off but it was like concurrently during that time that I was starting to go to nightclubs and it was like the kind of mid 2000s so there was a lot more cabaret and theatre stuff going on within like Club Kooky and all those kind of spaces and they formed a kind of like alternate reality that was much more visceral and um, body based quite sexual um, clowny um, yeah how did you enter that world? 
obviously it was existing mm. and you were visiting clubs, but mm. it's one thing from being a spectator totally. to a participant. Oh, for sure. I mean, I was living with a drag performer, Dallas Delaforce at the time, and I started to <laughs> go out with her. Um, I was also her uh, leaf blower, <laughs> so I had not her, I, I'd work with a leaf blower to blow her hair at, <laughs> to, at particular moments in her shows, and then I graduated from that role, <laughs> um, and I met a whole... I mean, I wouldn't say she was the only reason I met people, but, like, that was an entry point to um, some some of a community and some relationships, so um, including my partner, who I've been working with ever since. He was part of a whole collective of artists doing cabaret, um, collective cabaret work at 34B and stuff like that. So very much kind of, like, natural progression through... Um, friendship and intimacy and that kind of thing um, that then led to collaboration and um, putting on our own nights which then led to creating like entire kind of ecologies both of performance and like generating the space as well and that's something I've been doing for the last 12 years you probably never expected that when you went on stage with a leaf blower. No, <laughs> I wasn't on stage. I was like, I was literally in front, like hiding. I was really good at it actually because I know how to um, hit the right angle with the hair. <laughs> you know how to work a leaf blower. <laughs> Skill sets. So, like working in those spaces, mm. what was that freedom or what was that exploration, I guess? I think. Yeah. What What did you start thinking about as opposed mm. to that part of the mind that was yep. shut off dreaming? Yeah, no, for sure. I I think a lot of the early works are very, like, visual gag, um, comedy-based um, when I was working within a group and I was very excited about the uh, kind of clowning and more that kind of language. Um, visual gags, a lot of drag but not necessarily, like, it's kind of, like, more um, monstrous drag. Um, I was very into kind of stripping and um, and narrative-based work, so, like, kind of short comedic narratives, group spectacle, talking about um, often kind of, like, political ideas, but I think now they would be quite... Um, problematic the way we dealt with it <laughs> in terms of um, I just think politics change and, and also your kind of understanding of your place within the world which is good um, and then soon after like like a year of doing that I, I started to work with masks and costumes and, and got very excited about a much more formalist reconfiguration of my body so I'd, I'd make myself and my partner would collaborate to make these costumes that um, became the starting point for the work so how to see how how um, other I could become investing in these beings so there's like there was like a family of five creatures um, that I'd create these kind of dances or narratives for that often came after building the figure um, so it's kind of like they had stories but they were much more like a figure in space communicating to the audience through movement or music or a combination of all the those kind of signs and symbols. Yeah. So we're sitting obviously in a rehearsal room and you're about to 
like rehearse, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your process now? Like, how do you think about an idea and start to mm-hmm. realize that and move through that? It's totally different now. So, all those early works were very much, I would make a, um, I would make a costume and then whether it's like a very big mask that kind of covers, you know, like covers my face or is quite heavy or a full bodysuit made of plastic bags or like kind of having stilts, um, they would then um, be the framework to work within to create a gestural ecology. But now um, for the last few years I've been working within kind of um, a lot more within body weather as a kind of dance framework. Um, training with Victoria Hunt as a mentor and she's kind of really given me um, tools to generate choreography and narrative directly from my body so it's like very much focused on how I can use my body as the primary uh, uh, form for transformation and then adding masks and prosthesis Um, today I probably work with some structured improvisations. Um, I used to get really lost in this kind of space. This is completely daunting, but now I just kind of like set myself some tasks. Um, I'm rehearsing both a club work that I've got at Club Cookie this weekend, as well as the new theater work Carrion. So it'll be a bit of, of um, like, so I work often now with notation systems um, and image-based work. Uh, through the body weather framework, so I'll I'll be like, oh, this this um, this gestural ecology is called uh, monkey machine, and that within that kind of framework, that particularly I use my legs in this way, or um, there's this energy in my feet, or that kind of thing, and that's become a kind of new notation system, which is very much more useful than before. And then also working with my um, collaborator Benji, we've been looking at the translation of um, particular cultural dance through YouTube. So my matrilineal lines in the Philippines, and we we kind of are interested in how these kind of new manifestations come through, just through copying things on YouTube and then creating your own language from that as well. And then and then also going to the Philippines and training in those dances and seeing what the difference is. Um, so I guess I use multiple different modes now as well as I still return to like working with masks as well. So it's kind of like a bit of everything and a bit of drag too. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a big space. Are you in here by yourself all day? Yes, just me here today. But actually one of the ways I start to claim the space is I wash the floor. <laughs> yeah. So I wash the floor. Um, and then I'll just roll around and do a bit of um, a bit of the body weather, like MB training, and I find that kind of starts to claim the space. It doesn't feel so big anymore, and actually the stage is almost that size, so I have to learn how to um, send my energy out to the entire room, and that's actually often one of the processes I do with Victoria is like imagining beyond the room. Um, beyond the floor and that actually kind of shifts the scale of everything so is it lonely um i love being by myself sometimes so um, i have a very social existence and i i probably really enjoy having a moment 
um, within my familial social life to myself. Yeah. <laughs> Is there ever times you do something amazing in rehearsal and you wish there was somebody to see it? Sometimes I do uh, Instagram live. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a witness. So, yeah, I've probably got ten people who see it. <laughs> but then you end up performing for the screen, which is a very different thing. I did that for the first time the other day, and it was kind of an interesting experience. Um, and then I got a lot of real high from people commenting, and they'll say, oh, <laughs> I'm a dancing monkey. <laughs> <laughs> is there something about... I guess the the club scene perhaps mm. lends itself to this, mm. but that voyeuristic or that engagement with an audience that is... Mm. Uh, I'm trying to think of the language, but mm. that exchange between an audience, yeah. your spectator, and your it's, performance body. It's, I feel like they're more vocal within the club space. Like, you might, you might you get reviews and stuff for theatre work, but, like people will heckle you or like they'll they'll shout things out you'll know if they're into it based they're very like the exchange is much more uh vocal i think whereas i think although i mean that's my kind of frustration with theater blogs but um i i like both spaces and they both have a different sense of value um yeah i think yeah it's that kind of um it's not always as critical an engagement within the club, but it doesn't matter because I think um, you're just one part of a much bigger ecology of things going on. Um, and I guess that's why I get excited about the theatre as a space because people can invest in a much deeper narrative um, for a longer duration. I mean, you could do that in the club, but it's difficult to hold people. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's just different, I guess, different sets of rules in mm. each space as well. Mm. Your work explores, you know, queer narratives, queer ideas, queer mm. time, etc. Do you want to talk a little bit about that mm. within For sure. your current work that you're creating? Yeah. Um, so, I, I don't know. It's funny. I always think about the way that people classify my work as queer and I guess in many ways I like that as long as it kind of resists like just western queer ideas um, I think Carrion probably speaks a lot to queer potentiality and the potential of the body because the work kind of is very much me seeing the potential of my form to move between um machine, animal and um, and human forms and, and the kind of like being a chimera and being able to remix them um, and I think like I really like those kind of like queer theorists like who say Esteban Munoz who talk about like queer potentiality um, how else would I frame it I guess so there's that kind of potentiality um, but also, I guess it's a very non-linear work, yet it's still linear. Um, it, it's not, like, the narrative's not particularly didactic or literal. Um, it's very atmospheric, and there's very much a kind of language that comes, comes from a queer lineage, um, from particular artists, but it's also very much looking to a new, um, 
well that that's the goal anyway a kind of like Filipino futurism um, which I think is very queer because the language is also of an, a kind of imagined motherland because I'm I'm born in Australia and I've spent most of my life here and um, a lot of us fillers of the diaspora who are kind of removed from the homeland talk about like the imagination of the homeland or this kind of like um, and that that's just as important as a kind of connecting point um, so in many ways I feel like that's a very queer framework mm. um, what else when it comes to mm. ideas of queer mm. do you remember that first time where you found that sense of community or that sense mm. of contact yeah. of people are thinking or yeah uh, I think definitely it was going to Club Cookie when it used to be at 77. So um, Club Cookie's been running for like, gosh, I think it's like 20 or, 20 or more years. I'm probably wrong. But um, it used to be a regular night at 77 in um, King's Cross and they would always have a performance um, on the Sunday. And I feel like that was a very formative time because I'd witness, um, it felt like a very collective language between those artists that they were all uh, co-creating, whether they were aware or not. This a very um, relational uh, motifs and signs and symbols that um, I could connect to. That that felt like they kind of come from mainstream ideas, but then are totally twisted. Um, so I guess that was probably my first engagement um, and also how those kind of things emerge from dance music culture and, and that kind of experience. And it's probably left a really indelible imprint on me and the way I work, particularly artists like Sex and Glitter and Trash Fordville. And I just remember their long um, kind of pastiche uh, yeah, non-linear narratives that I got that I probably still work with in many ways, yeah. Mm. When it comes to, um, like, inspiration, mm. a drawing inspiration from so many different sources, mm. yep. what are you looking at or what stands out to you? I mean, they could be people, things, objects, mm -hmm. places, ideas. For sure. Well, I think, say, for example, with Carrion, a lot of it also draws from nature, so... Um, looking at birds and the way they move or um, the way that uh, bodies decay. I guess it's, it's pretty diverse um, what I use or kind of draw from in, in order to kind of tell a narrative. Um, I like to think of the work as a kind of soup um, where like you've got like your hot pot <laughs> and there's all the different meats and vegetables and ideas and then particular ideas might rise to the surface but they're all kind of like infusing and kind of informing each other um i i always try not to to like whack an idea over people's heads but to kind of create like a space for contemplation with moments of of violence or or sharpness and then beauty or I don't know. That's what I'm really drawn to in other people's work as well. Mm. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, just looking at your work, there's obviously mm. so many influences. Oh, totally. 
yeah, I guess like I mean, I I drove from places like the Muppets to opera to um, watching drag performances or or kind of like Hollywood movies and science fiction. There's a lot of science fiction motifs in this work. Um, I guess also, what else would be carrying? There's kind of like very pop cultural reference to do with like ideas of the cyborg as a kind of entry point for people to connect to this kind of like very Apple um, kind of capital figure, but also, yeah, nature's a, and it sounds so broad. <laughs> yeah. What, you know, you mentioned drag. What's your view on um, RuPaul and what's that's kind of done to drag or the ideas of drag and what that means? It's funny, actually, this morning I was walking. Um, so I have a son that I co-parent with my partner and he's 10 years old and he's completely... He was just talking on and on about, like, Eureka did this and, like, you know, like, he's very, like... Like, we watched it with him and then now he's become very, like, into the kind of competitive nature of it and all the kind of craft. Um, and I... What I like about RuPaul's Drag Race is it's kind of, like, it's made something... Um, accessible is a weird thing, but also, like, like to have this kind of reach to a very diverse audience is quite cool. Um, I know I, I don't agree with all her politics, but I also like the fact that it it prioritises um, performance and entertainment and it becomes a livelihood for so many queer people. Mm. Um, it, it has kind of created a very specific language um, of what drag is, but people still subvert it. Um, the binary gender stuff's a bit intense sometimes, and a bit particularly to do with transgender politics. Mm. But then also I think I like how, like if you are looking at particular people and their stories and then like seeing something that actually talks about class politics or like race in the more recent episodes um, on like very like mainstream television, I think that's pretty wild. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of got the gamut where it's like great in some ways and not in others. And it's like, you know, it is a capitalist phenomenon for her. Um, all the drag cons and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's so fraught because, I mean, it's that mass appeal and mass mm -hmm, audience mm -hmm. and mainstreaming. Yeah, 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 for sure. But then the safety yeah, or the totally. things that are built into it to make it palatable yeah. to the mainstream totally. totally ignores all these other types of doing drag mm -hmm. or gender fuck. For sure. <laughs> yeah, totally. But it's, it's catch-22. It's like exactly. there's positives and negatives. Totally. And you kind of see that with Instagram as well and the way that um, there's, like, all these new makeup trends and, like, ways that, like, particular ways of contouring or... <laughs> I mean, I guess my my way I interpret drag is using the vessel of carrion as this kind of machine that regurgitates text. And so I'm dragging the text often, or a kind of song, or... But it's much less to do with particular ideas of beauty or femininity. Um, it's kind of more monstrous or... 
Yeah. It's kind of like more like I'm a vessel for, for, for text or... And in that sense, you're playing more, I guess, with the ambiguity mm. of gender and ideas. Yes, for sure. Then yeah. drawing upon particular tropes mm. to... Yeah, totally. Mostly it's like I work with um, voice-to-text on my computer, so it's I'm kind of dragging these um, simulated human voices. What's and your favourite computer text voice? Um, Vicky. <laughs> <laughs> She's she's has some empathy, but she's quite um, cold. Um, yeah, it's funny because I do switch between all the different voices to try and find one. She works well as a narrator, so Vicky is often the narrator figure. You could probably theorize that. <laughs> so with this current work, mm. um, what's the outings, the seasons, the spaces, the yeah, for sure. So Carrion's a body of work. Um, I probably should have articulated different titles, but as it happened, um, I have a kind of series of club-based works um, that I've been touring, and that's kind of where the seed of the figure began. And it very much focuses on Carrion, the kind of human cyborg. Um, and so I've got a kind of series of, like, 15-minute works that I've done. I have my theatre season of Carrion, which is... Um, doesn't just focus on the cyborg figure but a kind of like becoming of um, multiple figures more like a chimera Um, and that season will open the last week of June at Arts House in Melbourne Um, it's been great because all these kind of works uh, inform each other and it's a way because it's difficult to do this the theatre season regularly um, in terms of resources and interest although that's building, um, it means that I can keep it in my body and keep finding different ways um, that these figures can kind of manifest. Um, And then I'm doing a kind of club-based mashup in Denmark at this festival called Roskilde, which is like, you know, you've got Cardi B and Eminem playing, (laughs) probably in the background while I'm performing. (laughs) So (laughs) it's like a very different context within which to hold people. But I really enjoy, yeah, like I always say, jumping between all those spaces. It's nice that the same ideas are being interrogated in mm. those different spaces and they're not necessarily standalone. Totally. It's, it's interesting, that kind of reception for this particular figure and how um, popular it's been as within, especially within the kind of club space and then moving into theatre, like the kind of... I think this kind of fear of the cyborg yet desire to see what's possible is a very, um, not just a Western feeling. Like it's been interesting how that work's been like, I've done it like six or seven times in um, Beijing and Shanghai within different club and gallery contexts, um, both commercial and also like kind of more underground. And it's been, it's kind of like a universal language. Um, yeah, I know that's kind of broad, but it, it's, it's really curious um, why people are drawn to that figure. Um, but it kind of makes sense, given the kind of observations of our trajectory at the moment mm. and our relationship, well, and, and our relationship to technology and kind of um, 
developments with surveillance and um, that kind of thing. The, the audience's receptions of your work in club settings mm. change depending on where the club is or the politics of the club. Are there different of nuances around that? Mm. I'm thinking internationally as well as locally. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what they're thinking, but I mean, it also depends if it's a good run <laughs> and whether the sound and light is good and, and whether, like, I have good energy putting it out there. Um, in terms of conversations afterwards, uh, I mean, recently I just came back from doing it in Texas and I was kind of nervous because the last... Um, nervous slash excited because the last speech within that particular club work is very much a kind of, like reflection of of a western fascist dictator salesman figure which is quite tyrannical um and whether my understanding is a kind of like person living in australia although we kind of have many similar figures here um was nuanced enough but but i had a really great conversation and response from a lot of different people i met there um in China, it's been very much, I think, people are drawn to the spectacle of the work. If, and maybe the text is more of a kind of um, texture um, or a feeling, whether it's understandable or not, because it's, it's still in English. Um, yeah, I'm sure that there's like a lot of nuance to do with particular spaces. I mean, I've even done it actually recently for a kind of older people and children in Canberra at the NGA and that was um, they read it in a very different way as well so it is very much about yeah the audience and then mm. the context for sure and what's next what's on for the rest of the year next I am developing a really big museum work for 2020 um, that I'm trying to it's like the first time that I've been given a really big space um, to create a work that's a combination of video, sculpture, and a live work. Um, and that's kind of somewhere I'm really interested in moving, um, where, because um, I haven't, it's been a long time since I've had the time to really focus on objects and, and my visual arts practice. But I want to use this as, as to kind of create a um, immersive, uh, frame to then host both my own performance and performances from the collective I'm in, Clavate. So that's something I'm working in f on for the next two years. Um, that'll come out in 2020. Um, I'm going to Taipei to do a two-week residency um, as part of the Adam Lab. Um, and then I'm going to spend a month in the Philippines doing research as well and visiting pageants and family and, and that's all kind of the ideas to inform this new work. Um, I, I'm trying to make everything inform each other instead of having such discrete works. And I, I know that I'll be doing carrying a while based on the interests, so I'm trying to create something completely oppositional. <laughs> <laughs> 
fresh space. Yeah, yeah. But I guess I keep seeing it. It's like this is the album people like. <laughs> <laughs> this is my hit song, my number one hit, and like that's just what you do. You keep singing it. <laughs> <laughs> album B's always you know, can be problematic. <laughs> I know the pressure's real. <laughs> Thank you so much. Is there anything else that I should have asked you or talked about or anything you wanted to talk about? Um, I think I'd encourage people to see Carrying at Arts House because I think it's my most complex work I've done within the kind of collective I work in. Um, And it's, and within these kind of like short seasons, like it's very much about being present and seeing the work and engaging with it. So that's my kind of selling, <laughs> selling point. <laughs> Come and see my work. Come and see the show. <laughs> so good. Thank you mm-hmm. so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You'll find a list of episode notes and links at delvingintodance.com, including Justin's art house show coming up this month. On the website, you'll find a range of other great material, including the research report Turning Point, Gender Equality in Australian Dance. You'll find Delving Into Dance on Facebook, iTunes and Twitter. We rely on your donations, so please contribute if you're enjoying this project. We also acknowledge the support of the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. Until next time, take care.